This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Pleasure to welcome Paul Beston to the program. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. How are you? Okay. Paul Beston has uh, written a book that uh, fascinates me. It's about boxing. It's called Boxing Kings, When American Heavyweights Ruled the Ring. Roman and Littlefield, the publisher of the book, is uh, just out. Paul Beston is managing editor of City Journal, published by the Manhattan Institute. His writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Real Clear Sports, The American Spectator, as well as on the boxing website, The Sweet Science. And you boxed yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. Uh, not formally, though. Um, I, I was never um, you know, any part of any formal boxing or even a, a, a gym. What I did was I boxed for many years with my older brothers. Uh, we uh, bought equipment. Uh, we had an instruction manual written by uh, former champ Floyd Patterson uh, called Inside Boxing, where we taught ourselves the punches. He, it's a very helpful manual. It was very clear and explained with lots of photos. We had uh, you know, a speed bag. We had a makeshift heavy bag, not a real one. I think it was an old tackling dummy from high school football. Okay. Um, and we had gloves. You know, we had the whole thing. And uh, you know, my brothers were older than I, so they, they made uh, you know great, great opponents. For me, I never, you know, did find my way down to a, to a gym or really try to pursue it in any serious way. Probably because in the back of my mind, I realized my my parents would probably have a, you know, have a coronary. But uh, but we did it for many years, right into college and through college. I went to the same college with one of my brothers, and we used to do it on the racquetball courts there at the rec center. So I did it for many years. I stopped, uh, you know, my early twenties. I thought, well, you know, I better. Uh, better quit while I'm ahead. Now you, in this uh, new book, The Boxing Kings, uh, talk about a series of boxers uh, who were heavyweight champions. John L. Sullivan uh, to Mike Tyson. There was John L. Sullivan, uh, Jack Johnson, Jack Dempsey, Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, Muhammad Ali, and then ending with uh, Mike Tyson. Uh, And you say at at some point uh, that the boxing is the ultimate focus of masculinity in America or if you didn't actually say that do you agree with it well actually yeah that that's part of a quote uh, in the uh, the book I have a, a set of epigraphs that open uh, you know the book and one of those is a uh, from Eldridge Cleaver, who said that the boxing is the ultimate focus of masculinity in America, and the, and the heavyweight champion is the real Mister America. <laughs> uh, one quote I didn't include, which is similar to that, uh, is the essayist uh, Gerald Early, who said that uh, back in the day, the heavyweight champion was essentially the emperor of masculinity. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it certainly did have uh, a connection to manhood in, in in more traditional time. There's no question about that. But um, the larger thing for me in the book that I was uh, more focused on was its identification and connection with America. Uh, that was um, the manhood thing is absolutely there, but the the American connection was really profound uh, through most of the heavyweight titles history and uh, through the the period that I chronicle, which is over a century. Almost every champion, with just a few exceptions, was an American. Mm. And I looked it up today. Like right now, I said, I wonder who's heavyweight champion of the world. So I looked, right. I looked it up and said Anthony Joshua, who def- and he's from Britain, I believe, defeated yep. Ukrainian Vladimir Kichko. So n- yep. n- now it appears that the heavyweight champions of the world are not American. That's right, and that's that's been a process that's uh, about two decades going now, which is uh, really remarkable when you consider how long 
the American possession of this title lasted. And uh, so that that made for me a very convenient uh, uh, place to end the book. I, I didn't get into uh, the subsequent decades that involved uh, the Klitschkos. There's actually two of them. Um, and uh, and then uh, Anthony Joshua coming here at the end. Um, but it has transitioned. It has left the United States shores largely, although some American heavyweights are getting back into the scene right now. But for a long time, um, uh, the last uh, close to 20 years, it, it's been international. The Klitschkos were very dominant for a long time. They fought a lot in Europe. And uh, and Joshua is a big uh, becoming a big star. Yeah, honestly, Britain, I don't point, know that yeah. name. Uh, the Chris, what were the Krishkos or Klitschkos. Yeah, was Vladimir was held it longer, but his his older brother uh, Vitali Klitschko, and they, you know they look. I don't think they're well. They're not twins, but they 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 look uh, quite mm-hmm. a bit alike. And big, powerful guys, and very impressive people, uh, educated and and interesting uh, uh, guys. And they held the titles for a very long time. But, you know, what's striking, again, is that without the American representation, the United States, at least fan interest in the United States in the heavyweights, basically dropped off. Mm-hmm. Um, just like as you were describing, you were trying to look up and, and find out who, who the heck the champion is today. And, you know, didn't, you know most, most people are in your shoes now with, in, in, that, in that respect, casual fans anyway. Because I don't know the answer to that question. They used to always know. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I must say I kind of got, got into watching – uh, boxing more or less with Mike Tyson. I mean, I had seen it before, you know, you know but, and, and as you uh, probably know, Mike Tyson has some local connections here in upstate New York. Yes. Yeah, I know where the, the, he was from Brooklyn downstate, and then he was incarcerated at the Tryon School, which is quite near where I live up in Fulton County. I know Bobby Stewart, the guy who uh, discovered oh, him uh, up at uh, mm-hmm. up at Tryon School, and of course, then there was Customato down in Catskill who trained him. And and another connection up here is there's a man named Paul Antonelli who was one of the reporters who consistently covered Tyson. He now uh, sure. is sports editor of the Amsterdam paper. And his connection with he he was related or married to the daughter of the doctor that Customato uh, used for his fighters. But anyway, I, I usually I want to go back to the very beginning and kind of try to walk you through that during our uh, chat uh, on the Historian's podcast. Sure. But did Mike Tyson ruin it? For I mean, this is the last one in your book. Uh, is it, you know, the things that he did, the the well-known kind of controversial things that happened, uh, is that just kind of uh, uh, soured Americans on, on bo- heavyweight boxing? I I don't think so. Uh, you know, it's, it's a natural uh, line of thinking to, to pursue, though, because uh, uh, his career really did flame out in a very spectacular and uh you know scandalous ways um but he he really uh for the most part he brought a tremendous interest uh in especially uh when he was younger when he first rose up to the title he was really an electrifying figure um he he brought so much fan interest especially back to the heavyweights which had uh, the division hadn't had a lot of public excitement for for some years before he showed up i think that uh, larger forces were at work um uh, affecting uh, really the sport of boxing uh, as he was as his career was playing out, and one of those forces was that the sport, by and large, disappeared from uh, regular free television, and I think that hurt the sport a lot. It's uh, actually come back to television in the last two years, but uh, if I remember correctly, it was a, a 30 years uh, gap between primetime 
boxing matches when it just came back in 2015. So, and that, that's my, you know, that's when I was growing up. You know, back in the late 70s, early 80s, tele, uh, boxing was all over television. It was it was readily available, mm-hmm. and that's how that's how it cultivated a big fan base. So, I think when it deserted free TV and it became more and more a pay-per-view kind of thing, it became more of a self-selecting audience, and it didn't have that kind of reach where the casual fan knew who these guys were. And then Tyson, he certainly became a scandalous figure, but uh, I think that uh, if if other pieces were in place and if another heavyweight had come behind him uh, who captured fans' interest, uh, you know, things Mm -hmm. things would have still uh, continued. You know, Evander Holyfield did succeed him in many ways, and he's popular popular guy he just didn't have the same kind of uh, mm-hmm. I mean Tyson is a is a tough act to follow hey, did you uh just curious did you interview uh, Bobby Stewart or Paul Antonelli for the book no I did not I did not do uh interviews for the book I worked from uh from newspaper accounts and and reading and research and my own uh, uh-huh. uh analysis okay so your book ends with Mike Tyson I'll have to go back to the beginning in fact maybe a little bit before the beginning uh, and again this sure. has more uh, something to do with upstate uh, the first uh, fighter you talk about is John L. Sullivan, but I guess before there was a, uh, a John L. Sullivan, there was a John Morrissey, who was from Troy, New York. Uh, he was That's a boxer, right. gang leader, politician, one of the founders yep. of Saratoga Racetrack. Another uh, gentleman I know, Brian Bouillet of the National Museum of Racing, has a book about uh, Morrissey. Did Morrissey and, and Sullivan ever meet or ever fight or each other? Or? No, they never fought. Uh, Morrissey was before his time, as you're as you're uh, suggesting. I think his nickname was Old Old Smoke. Old Smoke, yes, right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he, he's he's a remarkable figure. I, I I mentioned him very briefly in in the first chapter, which is, largely deals with with Sullivan, um, and he's he's interesting because he's such an exception to um, most of Sullivan's predecessors, which is that they were fighters and usually came to a pretty rough end you know it was a very it was an illegal sport first of all flat out but you weren't getting rich from it the way John L Sullivan was going to become and that's why John L Sullivan is such a landmark figure because he really makes this title into something that is a really a commercial entity and that of mass public appeal and able to make uh, huge sums of money for for the time, but Morrissey and his predis- uh, and his peers at the time it was it was much more of a you know a back alley uh, kind of thing, a very difficult life, and a lot of the the guys who were peers with Morrissey you know they didn't end up in Congress or or starting racetracks or, <laughs> right, or, or right. prospering the way that he did. I mean he really had a remarkable a remarkable life. Yeah, but let's go to John L. Sullivan, born 1858, died in uh, 1918, and he. Was there for like the transition from bare knuckle to gloved boxing? Yeah, that's right. He um, he won the title in in 1882, such as the title was then regarded. I mean, the British the British didn't recognize it, so he was regarded as you know the, the American champion, and he won it by fighting uh, with the bare knuckles in in the old uh, rules, which were uh, called the London Prize Ring rules, and they were they were put together in England, and uh, these were the fights not only the most obvious difference being that the lack of gloves, but also that the rounds were not timed the way they are today, three-minute rounds and one-minute rest in between. The rounds would go as long until someone went down, whether it could, and it could be by a knockdown from a punch. It could also be by a wrestling toss, because with the bare hands, they had different rules. You could uh, you could grapple, you could headlocks, you could uh, uh, trip a guy, you know, hold him and, and trip him down and wrestle on the ground. So as soon as one guy went down, what they called a fall, the round would end. So a round could end in five, ten seconds. It could end in five, ten minutes. 
And further, the fights didn't have a 12-round distance or a 15-round distance. They were fought, quote, to the finish. In other words, until one guy can't go on, whether he's counted a 10 count over him or whether he just cannot continue. So some of these fights could go on for hours. So it was a really uh, a very different, uh, very different um, endeavor than it is today. So that's why he won. Uh, that's how he became the American champion. But he was already attracted by the gloves. He thought the gloves were a better, a better way to do this. And he did uh, countless exhibitions all around the country, usually wearing boxing gloves. Um, and when he finally lost the title in 1892 to a guy named James J. Corbett, they were uh, fighting with gloves. Mm. So by that point, the gloves had become. Uh, the, the, the permanent thing. We're talking with Paul Beston, author of The Boxing Kings, When American Heavyweights Ruled the Ring. Uh, more with uh, our guest uh, in just a moment here on the Historian's Podcast. On the Historian's Podcast, we depend on your contributions to keep us going. We have a GoFundMe campaign in operation. Go to GoFundMe.com forward slash historians 2017. It's easy to make a donation online, and we'd really appreciate it. If you don't uh, like to donate online, you can send a check in the mail. Make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. On The Historians, we're discussing boxing history with Paul Beston, author of The Boxing Kings, When American Heavyweights Ruled the Ring, which takes a look at a number of uh, world heavyweight champions uh, from America. Uh, We uh, just talked about uh, John L. Sullivan, and now Jack Johnson, uh, who lived from 1878 to 1946, and he uh, was an African-American, and this was a really really big deal that he became the world heavyweight champion. What, what happened? Yes, it was. He won the title in 1908, and that, that quote that we were talking about a few moments ago about manhood uh, was was at the core of this, uh, of why it was a big deal, because at that time in America, obviously, uh, you know, the racial climate, very different, completely Jim Crow uh, society in the South, uh, lynchings and and plenty of uh, racial discrimination and prejudice in the north as well and attitudes about blacks in the press that uh, you can read old newspaper accounts and you you know you're just astounded astounded at the language used the title the heavyweight title that is by that point by 1908 had already acquired a certain uh, stature and history to it that millions of whites felt uh, was something worth uh, protecting and uh, the idea that a black man might hold it especially by beating a, a white fighter was uh, really uh, disturbing to them. And so um, when he did win the title, um, it, it was a kind of almost like a national panic. Uh, uh, J- uh, Jack London, the novelist, was sitting at ringside when uh, when Johnson won the title. They fought in Australia. And he essentially wrote, uh, the white race has to rise up and get this, get this title back from Jack Johnson. And the guy he called upon to do that was the uh, uh, retired uh, champion, James J. Jeffries, who had retired four years earlier, uh, and did not want to come back out and fight, but eventually public pressure led him to come back out in 1910 and fight Johnson in Reno, Nevada, July 4th, 1910, in a fight that uh, has very few uh, peers in terms of its uh, political and social significance at the time in America. Uh, Johnson uh, dominated Jeffries and won the fight 
easily. And uh, in the days after the fight, uh, race riots broke out in dozens of American cities. So it was a very traumatic time in the United States. And uh, Johnson uh, was really uh, uh, holding up a mirror, really, to the country in terms of where where we were uh, on race relations at that time over 100 years ago. And other controversies followed uh, Johnson. He was charged with what violating the Mann Act? That's right. Yeah, the Mann Act, which had been passed in uh, 1912, I believe, um, was a, a law, of, uh, which is still on the books, by the way, um, uh, against uh, human trafficking, uh, which, you know, is interesting because that still goes on today, as we know. Uh, but it was, it was very much driven uh, about preventing, uh, it, was, it was codenamed, kind of a codenamed the White Slave Act, which was a term that they used for uh, um, protecting white women who were being sort of sold and abducted into prostitution. And so uh, they wanted, the way that they wanted to crack down on this was to make, make it illegal to move women between interstate lines. Uh, for what they called illicit purposes, which essentially meant uh, prostitution, and the implication was it was against their will that they were being sent, you know, to 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 do this uh, against their will. Well, Johnson ran afoul of the law because um, he was a very uh, flamboyant man, and he really enjoyed uh, the pleasures of um, you know nightlife and nightclubs, and he had a real penchant for prostitutes himself, uh, including uh, white prostitutes, and he married. Uh, a few uh, white women, which was again part of his uh, uh, social controversy that just that just uh, made people uh, beside themselves at the time. Um, but he was very uh, careless, really, frankly. I mean, he he uh, he he should have been more careful, given how much he was in the crosshairs, and he was he was uh, traveling back and forth with some of his his uh, consorts, and uh, he was even giving them some money to set up some of their own businesses, brothels and things of that kind. Of course, though, they were not traveling against their will. They were lovers of his. So it really didn't meet the standards of the law, mm -hmm. but the federal government saw uh, a, a chance, really, frankly, to uh, to get him because he had really gotten in the crosshairs at this point in American life. And so they brought a Man Act prosecution against him and, and convicted him. Mm. Um, and uh, before he could uh, serve his sentence, he uh, he fled the country. He then spent the rest of his time as champion, uh, essentially in exile, mostly in Europe. Mm. That's Jack Johnson. Then Jack Dempsey, another uh, boxer you profile, uh, born 1885, died in 1983. He was from out west. He was a, a, a white man. And uh, he, he, well, anyway, tell us about Jack Dempsey. Well, Jack Dempsey, in many ways, is uh, kind of a co-equal with, with Babe Ruth in the 20s of what they called the golden age of sports and helping to bring uh, sports in, this after, in the aftermath of World War One really into kind of the first modern age. You know, radio was just about to, to come into into being, and uh, Babe Ruth, you know, in the, starting in 1920, was, was playing with the New York Yankees and began hitting home runs and setting home run records and packing out crowds. But Jack Dempsey is often overlooked now because, I think, because of boxing's loss of stature. Dempsey was just a huge figure in the 20s, and he fought in a way reminiscent of Mike Tyson half a century later, super aggressive, uh, very exciting. Uh, people didn't want to miss his fights. They didn't want to miss the early rounds. Uh, and he had he had a knockout punch, so he 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 burst upon the scene, and in the 20s he really is a is a figure uh, who had a lot to do with boxing becoming legal in a lot of the states that that hadn't legalized it yet because 
the, the dollars were flowing with Jack Dempsey. Uh, promoters built custom-built arenas for you know to seat 90 or 100,000 people to watch his fights. And the old pictures of this that you can you can look up are pretty astounding crowds. They kind of look like those big college football crowds you see today, you know, in Michigan or something mm-hmm. uh, for uh, for prize fights. So he was just a um, uh, a major figure in sports in the 20s and uh, uh, kind of an icon of that of that era. And then uh, you uh, discuss Joe Lewis, born 1914, died in 1981. He was an African-American and probably is most famous for fighting, uh, wasn't he, a German, Max Schmeling, uh, two times, I believe. Schmeling beat him the first time, and then he beat uh, Schmeling. That's right. Uh, he lost his first fight uh, to Max Schmeling, who uh, at that time was getting um, closer to uh, the, the the Hitler regime in, in uh, Nazi Germany. They were, they were really adopting him and embracing him and holding him out as an example of uh, Aryan supremacy. And uh, Schmeling, uh, there's a lot of uh, writing and scholarship about how willingly Schmeling went into that, and there's, there's debates about that that persist to this day. Um, but at any rate, by the time it came time for a rematch in 1938, Schmeling was rightly or wrongly identified by most Americans as Hitler's, you know, Hitler's fighter, and uh, he was going to go in the ring against Joe Lewis in this in this grudge match, this rematch. In the meantime, Lewis had won the title, so he was the champion. But he said he didn't feel like the champion until he could beat Schmeling, and he did uh, just destroy Schmeling in one of the boxing's greatest performances. It just took him over two minutes to do it. But the the real significance of that fight is that. Uh, millions and millions of Americans rallied to Joe Lewis in a patriotic rally to him, and many of them were white. And that is a, a major shift because we were just mm-hmm. talking about Jack Johnson and, and so many whites rooted against Jack Johnson for not very good reasons. And here was Joe Lewis inspiring people to see him as a fellow American. And that was, um, that was a major moment. And, and subsequently, years after that, when Lewis enlisted in, in the armed forces during the outbreak of the war, he rallied uh, more people to his side and would go on to really pave the way for Jackie Robinson. And I think he's um, really kind of overlooked his, his role in all of that is, mm-hmm. is really overlooked. And then we come to Rocky Marciano, uh, born 1923, died in a plane crash in uh, 1969. And he was uh, an Italian-American from Brockton, Massachusetts, and retired undefeated, right? Yeah, and that was uh, <clears throat> just in the news not too long ago, of course, because they had that fight in August where uh, Floyd Mayweather was 49-0. and that was, that was Rocky Marciano's uh, finishing record, 49-0. and and Floyd Mayweather was 49 and 0, and he was fighting the, that MMA fighter Conor McGregor, and, and beat him to go 50 and 0. So people were uh, reviewing Rocky Marciano again in that context, and his, his record does have a way of coming up. It's one of those uh, sports marks that uh, it's a little bit like that Joe DiMaggio hitting streak and and things like that. It uh, sticks in the mind. Mm. Uh, something about the 49. This is something very neat about it. Uh, but yeah, he is the only heavyweight champion never to lose a fight. And um, as you said, he's the son of Italian immigrants. So, you know, if you go back to a guy we started with, uh, John L. Sullivan was a real reflection of Irish immigration at that time in the late 19th century. And Rocky Marciano, the Italian wave came a little bit later. And uh, Marciano was the son of an Italian immigrant. So boxing has that way of reflecting uh, a, a lot of the social trends and social mobility, mm-hmm. especially in the United States, of, of, of these groups. And uh, he was a great hero, too. Uh, you know, to millions of Americans of any of any walk of life, but mm-hmm. uh, certainly a special appeal to Italian Americans. And I've I've been in Italian restaurants even today where you can still uh, you can still find his picture. Sure. 
And then we come to the greatest, Muhammad Ali, 1942 to 2016. He uh, really did transcend boxing. I mean, he was uh, famous in, on a number of fronts. He certainly did. I mean, the sports, sports as we know them was really never the same after Muhammad Ali came along. Uh, I think on, on two primary fronts, the first would be uh, showmanship, um, showmanship and, and, and just athletic behavior. Um, it's easy to remember, uh, easy to forget, I should say, today that when he when he came on the scene in 1964, when he won the title, raving, you know, I'm the greatest, I'm the prettiest and all these things. Um, that really felt like someone from almost like a, from another planet because boxer, boxers, not just boxers, but football players, uh, uh, baseball players, you know, you, you can look at old uh, footage of football players scored touchdowns and they flipped the ball to the referee and shook hands with their teammates, you know, and uh, uh, home, uh, home run hitters didn't walk uh, halfway up the baseline looking at their at their home run and there was much less gesture, almost no gesture. It was a very stoic uh, kind of culture in sports and in, in the United States generally. And uh, Ali really just, he kind of blew that apart. I mean, he came along and uh, his his magnetism and showmanship uh, changed all that. And I, I, I'm one who doesn't feel it's been entirely been a change for the better, but that's that's another subject. Uh, he certainly had a, a great influence that way. And then, of course, the other front was, was political because he... Um, joined this uh, black nationalist group, the Nation of Islam, run by Elijah Muhammad. That was a, a, similar to Jack Johnson, a great shock to white America that uh, that he would join such a group that uh, that preached separation of the races right at the time when, when we were moving toward integration and Martin Luther King was inspiring a lot of white Americans to, to look inside themselves and, and, uh, and support that. So, um, you know, and then that ran into uh, the ran ran him right into the crosshairs of the U.S. government eventually because he was called for uh, military service in Vietnam, and uh, at at Elijah Muhammad's direction, he refused to do that. So that ended up put him in a court case. It, uh, he was suspended from boxing for three years, um, lost the best years of his career, and then came back in the 70s and went on to uh, many other glories. But the uh, the big arc of his career that's that's interesting is the public reception in the 60s and 70s. He was a figure of tremendous contention and a lot of unpopularity unpop mm -hmm. and uh, over the course of the last 40 or 50 years the culture has generally embraced Ali uh, as a hero uh, I'm not sure he deserves that on the on, on some of these fronts I think it's a, a, it gets a little bit over mythologized but he was a, a charismatic uh, uh, individual and he's a person whose best qualities are very hard to resist he was he was uh, joyful he was humorous uh, he had a, a very good heart at, at, at the core of it I think he made uh, some some uh, unfortunate judgments in his life, but uh, but uh, he he's deserves his place uh, in boxing mm -hmm. and in sports, and in my view, he's the best heavyweight that that we ever had. Mm. And then uh, the, you end with uh, Mike Tyson. We've already discussed Iron Mike Kid Dynamite, uh, who's still alive, born in uh, 1966. Well, what maybe we have a minute or so left. Uh, you m mentioned also, uh, you know, obviously other fighters and other parts of boxing history. Uh, what do you think of Don King, the promoter? Uh, Don King is a, a figure who, um, it, it, on the one hand, he comes along in, in, in a line of, uh, of great boxing promoters that goes back to the 20s with, with Jack Dempsey. His great promoter was Tex Rickard, who may still be the greatest promoter that boxing ever had. But Don King had a little bit of that uh, that image to him. I mean, he, he's... Um, like a lot of these figures, he's completely self-created. I mean, he had a very dark past, uh, served two prison sentences 
for uh, manslaughter. And uh, yet within uh, getting out of prison the second time, within about two years, he was uh, near the top of the boxing world as a promoter, uh, starting with the Ali and Foreman fight in uh, in Africa in 1974. So he uh, was a, a remarkable self-promoter himself. Everybody who's ever seen a picture of him, of course, remembers his, his hair. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was also uh, he has also been uh, accused for for decades now of really uh, just uh, out, practically outright thievery from uh, his fighters, and many of those fighters were heavyweights. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Larry Holmes, who succeeded Ali, was involved with Don King, and Don King eventually mm-hmm. got involved with Mike Tyson, who doesn't have uh, generous things to say about him either. So he's he's a figure of great uh, contention. Paul Beston has been with us on the Historian's Podcast. His uh, new book is called The Boxing Kings, When American Heavyweights Ruled the Ring. It's uh, out now, published by Roman and Littlefield, uh, a look at the history of America and the world heavyweight title. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.